morning. My name is Rich Wells. For those that don't know me, I'm one of the deacons. I'm currently serving on the Buildings and Grounds Committee. The reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, and that's on page 1030 in the Pew Bible, if you use the Pew Bible. I'm going to give you a minute to turn there, and while I do, I have, while you do, I have a message or an announcement from the Buildings and Grounds Committee. Uh, this week, we will be taking out these pews in the balcony, and there have been some interest expressed from some that they would like to have one of those, and if that's the case, uh, contact the church office in the morning, first thing, or uh, one of the buildings and grounds committee, uh, that would be me, uh, or Doug Waltz, or Brian Booth, or Steve Myers. But do think about that before you decide you want one. These are the old pews that were in the building before it was expanded. Uh, I've been here nearly 34 years. They were here several years before that. They're not in very good shape. Uh, they're not solid wood, they're veneered, so they're, they are not solid oak as they appear to be from the outside. And they're heavy. Uh, we've got to cut them up in three pieces just to get them out. And so, but if you are, with that said, interested in one, just let the office know first thing in the morning. And we'll try to make that happen. So, uh, the reading again, Revelation 3, 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing, not realizing you are wretched pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we can be here. And we thank you, Father, for Christ for his death in our place, his blood atonement for our sin, his rising again, our justification. We thank you, Lord, that we set aside this day to remember these things. Thank you, Lord, Lord Jesus, that you are at the right hand of God right now, interceding for us. We pray that everything we do this morning would be honoring and glorifying to you. Speak through Pastor Toby with power and clarity this morning and accomplish in each of our minds and hearts what you intend, what you desire. That we be doers and not just hearers. And that we honor you each moment in each day of our lives. In Jesus' name.
Well, good morning, church. He is risen. Amen. The scripture is filled with those things that um, boggle the mind and are beyond understanding in naturalistic ways. Um, the resurrection of the dead is one such thing. Uh, one other such thing is a human being spending three days and nights in the belly of a great fish. And actually next week, uh, we will begin five weeks through the prophecy of Jonah. And so if uh, you are new to church, to Christianity, the message of mercy and grace and judgment and all of it is so clear in the prophecy of Jonah, this would be a great way to uh, be introduced to some of these fundamental biblical ideas. And so I would encourage you just to come on back uh, next week. Uh, today, uh, we're going to be closing up a series of messages that we've been doing in, in Revelation 1 to 3 by looking at this letter to the church in Laodicea. Not unrelated to the resurrection, by the way, because it is the risen Christ who is speaking. This is not Jesus in his earthly ministry sending a letter to a church. This is Christ at the right hand of the Father speaking to the church whose souls he purchased with his own blood, speaking for their good, speaking for the glory of God, speaking to, as we've seen, each church in uh, turn right where they are and the words that they need precisely. And so what I would say is, if you're visiting with a friend or if you're new to us or you're new to Christianity, I would say to you that it is no accident, it is not coincidence that you will happen to hear this, these particular words. Uh, in fact, uh, the snow of January is part of what pushed this message to this day. So uh, we're all thinking about these words this day because God has providentially brought us to this place. And uh, so let's do so thoughtfully. Self-sufficiency can be a good thing. It's one of the goals that we as parents have for our children, isn't it? They, we want them to feed themselves. We want them to dress themselves. Uh, we want them to take their own plate to the sink. We want them to go to the bathroom alone. We don't want to go with them. And then later in life... We want them to be able to live on their own, provide for themselves through a job, have their own place, pay their own bills, be self-sufficient. I remember when Susan and I were first married, uh, as many of you could testify, you shared the same experience, we were flat out broke, just flat broke. We had enough to get by if nothing ever broke and if nothing ever went wrong. But the problem is things were always breaking and things were always going wrong. And I remember being on the phone with a mentor of mine at the time, laying out this problem for him and saying the latest financial crisis, whatever it was, and just saying, you know, back in college, if something like this came up, I would just pick up the phone and I'd call my parents and I'd say, I love you, Dad. <laughs> Don't you want to help your dear old son out? And he's, I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, Toby, no matter what happens, no matter how bad it gets, do not call your parents. Find another way. 
Well, we did. We didn't call my parents. And so if that's the kind of thing that we mean by self-sufficiency, it can be quite a good thing. Boys and girls becoming men and women, learning to live. But there is a kind of self-sufficiency that's actually quite terrible and tragic and dangerous. And this is a self-sufficiency which sees no need for Jesus. Oh, sure, Jesus has his place, but really it's more of a ceremonial role than anything else. It's okay to include him at things like weddings or funerals or if you're having a biopsy of some sort done or on particular days of the year. One may tip his cap to religion here or there, and yet so many people, even those who would say that they are Christians, believe that they're fine without the Lord Jesus Christ playing any significant or meaningful role in day-to-day life. That it's fine, if you will, to keep Jesus at arm's length. This, in many ways, is the problem in the church at Laodicea, which we have just read about. They're satisfied where they are. They, need, they see no need for the help of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, fellowship with Jesus, dependence on Jesus. They've kept Jesus at arm's length. In fact, they've kept Jesus at such distance, if you noticed, He is outside the church knocking on the door. Their attitude here has actually excommunicated the Lord of the church from the church. I mean, think about that. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and lived a life of perfect righteousness, died on the cross, bearing our sin and our guilt, taking our punishment, satisfying the wrath of God, rose again, announcing the defeat of sin and death, guaranteeing forgiveness and life to anyone who would turn from their sin and trust in Him. Jesus had quite literally given them everything. And they won't give him the time of day. So here in this letter, the risen Christ speaks to his church, telling them that things must change. And the lesson of this letter really isn't just for Laodicea, is it? It's for many churches. It's for ours. It's for all Christians. And the message is that every self-sufficient church must repent and renew its fellowship with Jesus. Every self-sufficient church must repent and renew its fellowship with Jesus. If we're going to take this down to the individual level, the same is true. Every self-sufficient Christian must repent and renew their fellowship with Jesus. The pride of self-sufficiency in Laodicea is seen in verse 17. Look at it. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, And I need nothing. Now, such an attitude would have actually been known throughout Laodicea. It is a proud city. They have a thriving uh, textile industry. They manufactured at that point uh, from the sheep this black, smooth, soft wool that was in high demand everywhere. Not only that, they had a flourishing medical school with famous professors, and it was on the cutting edge of medical technique. They were developing compound medicines like an ear ointment, like like an eye salve. Because of all this, money is flowing into Laodicea. 
And so it becomes a, a, a prominent banking center in the region. There was so much money in town, in fact, that when an earthquake strikes in around A.D. 60, uh, Laodicea rebuilds on its own dime. No telethon, no FEMA trailers, no governmental assistance. They just have the money. They're just like, okay, well, the city went down. We've got enough money to cover that. We got it. It's a proud city. It's a wealthy city. In fact, if they had had a sign welcoming people into the city, it might have read, Welcome to Laodicea, rich, prosperous, and satisfied. I mean, if you want economic stability, if you want upward mobility in your career, move to Laodicea. This is the place. You can do it. And this letter being what it is, not only would the sign to the city seem to read that way, it seems the sign to the church would read about the same way. Welcome to the church in Laodicea. We're rich. We've prospered. We need nothing. What about you? Do you feel like they do? You feel like, well, you know, not every, everything is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm, I'm doing all right. I mean, I've got a good job, I've got a house, I've got, you know, working for my family where uh, kids are playing soccer or basketball or baseball or football or all of them, doing whatever it is. We've got this thing, you know, fairly well under control. Or, I wonder if you ever find yourself needy. I wonder if you ever feel that you need something outside yourself to help. Someone outside yourself to help. And not just at certain points in life, but throughout life, in all of the messiness that unfolds week in and week out. Well, maybe you don't know how to answer that question. Maybe you don't know how to answer, do you feel self-sufficient or not? So what would it look like? What would it look like if you were? If I was? Well, it would look like a marriage, or friendships, or parenting, or decision-making based on hunches, intuition, following your heart, following your gut, going with what seems wise in your own eye, rather than turning to the Bible for God's wisdom or listening to godly counsel from others. It looks like prayerlessness. Oh, yes, I mean, you bow your head. We all bow our heads in the worship service, but maybe you're only waiting for it to come to an end. You have no real burden to praise the Lord, to thank the Lord, to confess your sins to the Lord, to seek intervention from the Lord, because whatever's going on, you'll figure it out. It looks like thinking that your job or your studies at school are separate from your Christian life somehow, forgetting that what you do there, how you work, should be born out of faith in Christ not simply the training you received in college or the experience you have over a number of years. It might look like a church that believes it has ministry figured out. We've got the approach. We've got the technique. We've got the strategy. We've got it. 
Oh, yes, sir, the Bible is opened when, the, when there's preaching time or there's teaching time or maybe even when there's counseling time. But, but books on things like marketing and management and metrics are opened when it's time to plan and evaluate ministry. Self-sufficiency, dear friends, can keep the cover of Christianity. But behind the scenes, it works covertly to undo real, vital, daily faith. It is the disconnect between the word we proclaim and the way we live. In short, any time the way we live rests on us and our resources rather than God and His resources, His Word, His Spirit, then we are proclaiming with the Laodicean church, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. And Jesus' response to this kind of claim is clear, and He introduces Himself first in, the, in verse 14, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. That He's the Amen, that, meaning He is trustworthy, that His character guarantees that His Word is true, He's faithful and true, but not only that, that His Word is authoritative, that He is the beginning of God's creation, He is the source, He is the origin, He is the ruler. It's much the same way that Paul writes about Christ in Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Now, that verse is up on the screen. I just want to point out, you see the end of the first sentence, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. If you were to ask Paul what that means, that's why he keeps going. For, because, this is how we know he is the image of the invisible God. This is how we know he is the firstborn of all creation. Let me tell you what that means. Everything's made through him and for him and by him. That's what that means. He's the origin, he's the source, he's the ruler. And so, Jesus the creator, Jesus the amen, Jesus the faithful and true witness speaks. And his motivation is in verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Whatever it is that Jesus has come to say, He's not come to condemn them, but to call them back to Himself. He loves them. He loves them. Greater love has no man than this, that He lay down His life for His friends. And Jesus Christ loves this church. And he knows that their pride, their apathy, their complacency, their self-sufficiency will be their ruin. Oftentimes, dear friends, love has to speak into what is wrong so that things can be right again. It is not love to see what is wrong and not say what is right. That is not love. Love says, here's what's wrong, and here's how it can be made right. And Jesus loves Laodicea. So He's going to reprove them. He's going to discipline them. And as we hear what He says, all of us, myself included, need to consider whether the pride of self-sufficiency in this text 
is also in our hearts. Are we keeping Jesus at arm's length? Have you excommunicated Jesus from daily life? Is He more an outsider, like a consultant, at times, than an insider, one with whom you have close relationship? If we are self-sufficient, we need to hear what He says, and there are five things that He says The first thing he says, the Lord Jesus says, is self-sufficiency sickens me, makes me sick. Look at verses 15 and 16. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now this whole business of hot and cold has often been used to speak of hot as being spiritual passion and cold as being spiritual apathy. But I don't think that that's the case here for two reasons. One, Jesus would never prefer the church that He died for be spiritually apathetic or cold, all right? Also, He doesn't say He will spit them out of His mouth if if they are cold, but surely Jesus would come against them, as He does so many other churches, if they are not following Him fully. Only if they are lukewarm will they be spit out. So in truth, I really do believe this is a reference to the city's water sources. There were two coming in. One was uh, kind of northeast of the city, well, for you, northeast of the city. They were hot medicinal springs of Hierapolis. And from the southeast, the cold and refreshing water of Colossae would flow into the city. But by the time the water actually got from those places to the city, it was tepid, it was lukewarm, it was foul, and it was useless. And and Jesus is saying, that's you. The church isn't like the hot springs of Hierapolis that bring healing through their ministry. Help. They aren't like the Their life as a church is not the refreshing water of Colossae that refreshes the soul. Their spiritual sufficiency is nasty, lukewarm, and useless. And in fact, if you look at verse 16, you'll see the word spit there. I'll spit you out of my mouth. This is not a strong enough word in English. Jesus isn't saying he doesn't prefer the flavor of the Laodicea church, so he's going to, at dinner, politely spit them into his napkin and just put it under the table. Some of you may do that at whatever meal you go to today because you got a hold of something you don't like. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that their works, their way of life, their self-sufficiency is like Ipecac. It's that stuff that you give to your children to induce vomiting when they've swallowed poison or something. Self-sufficiency disgusts Jesus. It hits his gag reflex. Makes him vomit. Which is a picture of the type of temporal judgment and the suffering that they will face if things do not change. It's actually worse than that. You don't think it could get worse than that, but it gets worse than that. 
The second thing he says to them is you're clueless about your neediness. You're clueless about your neediness. Look at verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing, not knowing, not seeing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They're lukewarm, and they don't even know it. This is one of the very aspects of lukewarmness, isn't it? You feel like everything's okay. I'm going along quite nicely. Things that, nothing's terribly wrong right now. Everything's good. But they don't see what is so wrong. They don't see what Jesus sees. They don't taste what Jesus tastes. Their gag reflex isn't working. The pride of self-sufficiency blinds us to reality. When I was a kid, um, we had these little toys. My grandmother had them at her house. Uh, Viewmasters. You remember the Viewmasters? You'd put your face up again. They had this circle of slides, and you put the slides in, and you can look at landscapes, or you could look at animals, or you could look at famous artwork. The one thing you can't see when you're looking in the Viewmaster is anything else going on around you which is why it's best not to walk and carry a Viewmaster at the same time. I will save any stories about that for another day. But I'll just tell you from experience, don't walk around with a Viewmaster up to your face because things could go badly. And Jesus is telling them that's what's wrong with them. They can't see the reality. They're looking in a Viewmaster at a picture of themselves that they have created. But it's not reality. In the viewmaster, they look rich. But when it comes down, you are poor. In the viewmaster, they look quite prosperous. But the reality is, they are wretched and pitiable. In the viewmaster, it looks like they need nothing. But Jesus says, no, you're blind and you're naked. The truth is, friends, that those times when we think things are just going on in life, things are grooving, things are going, you're getting the promotion, you know, your family's thriving, the bills are paid, your health is good, and all those things, those can become a kind of viewmaster that give us the impression that we don't need anything else. We don't need God. The viewmaster slides of worldly ease blind us to spiritual reality if we are not careful. To the fact that the deepest need of our soul can't be found in ourselves or in this world and that our deepest need isn't to get to the place where we're rich and prosperous and need nothing. That's not actually the goal of life. But when things go well, we can get blind to the fact that that's not the goal of life. And we become consumed with this must be the goal of life. Look at how good it looks in the Viewmaster. Jesus says you're blind to your neediness. Your self-sufficiency makes me sick and you are blind to your neediness. But he has again not come just to say those things, but to call them back to himself. And so the next thing we see that Jesus says to them is come to me. Look at verse 18. 
I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus' counsel has come back. Come back to faith. Come back to relying on me. Come back to me. Come to me. I am the only one who can actually help you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So come back. It's the same kind of call that God issued to His people in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money. And without price. And God, a couple of verses later, says, Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. In between, he says, Why are you eating things that won't satisfy you? Why are you doing this? You're only hurting yourself. And in compassion and in mercy, Jesus has come to me. Do you know why that's such good news to hear? Because every single one of us, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, have been at that place in our Christian lives where we needed the sweet and merciful voice of Jesus to say, come back to me. When we deserve to have him say, I am spitting you out. Think about how relevant these words are to the church in Laodicea. They had this prosperous banking industry. Rich. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. Come to me for refined gold. I have the true riches, the lasting riches, the real riches. He had said just this thing in Matthew chapter 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. This is exactly what he's saying to the church in Laodicea. Stop checking your checking balance and thinking that if it's up, or if it's just in the black for some of us, you're good. Take a look in the mirror of the Word and realize that the treasures are in heaven. They produce clothes in high demand. And Jesus says, those clothes are fine and good, but you know what they cannot do? They cannot cover your shame. You can be dressed to the nines, be thought of well by everyone around you and know the torment of your own shame when you lay down at night. And even if you don't know it, it's there. But you can't do anything about it. Come to me and I'll give you white garments of righteousness to cover that shame. Laodicea had a great medical school with an eye salve used to help those whose eyes were suffering and in pain and losing their sight. 
And Jesus says, the salve that you really need is the salve that I can give you. Because you are not seeing clearly spiritual reality. You are not seeing me clearly. You are not seeing yourselves clearly. You are not seeing life clearly. Come to me, Jesus says. There's treasure in heaven. Come to me, Jesus says. There are garments for your shame. Come to me, Jesus says. There is salve to make you see the way you need to see. So having come to him, he says, repent and renew our fellowship. Verse 19 and 20. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This repent and being zealous, these are two sides of the same coin. They are thinking wrong and they are doing wrong. And the word repent means that the way that you've been thinking, that pattern of thinking about yourself and about Christ and about life and what you need, it needs to change. You need to turn away from that. You need to put that kind of thinking to death. Stop thinking that church life with Jesus on the outside is okay. Stop thinking that Jesus is like your appendix that he can be removed with very little difficulty and without much problem for life. But rather, start thinking, remember, that Jesus is who he is, the head of the church, the life source, their strength, their captain of salvation, their hope, their help. Stop singing the hymn of self-sufficiency, which is made popular by Frank Sinatra, right? I did it my way. And start singing the hymn of Christian dependency once again. I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour, I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. Repent. And renew fellowship. He says Jesus is knocking. This is the picture that he gives us. And he'll come in if they open the door through repentance. Now, some will use this to tell those who don't believe in Jesus that Jesus is knocking on the door of their heart here. And while it's true that Scripture does teach there is a call on all men everywhere to repent, there is a call that goes out to believe the gospel, to receive Christ. And whoever does receive Him has a relationship with Him and is made a child of God. But, but that's not particularly what's taught here. The door here is the door of the church. And opening that door, when, if Laodicea were to open that door, it would not be to begin fellowship with Jesus, but to renew fellowship with Jesus. It would be to regain what was lost when the church started relying on itself. It would be to turn from apathy and return to zeal, to an all-consuming desire to know and listen to and obey and walk with and praise and please and enjoy Jesus. More than anything else. 
And when that happens, Jesus says, we'll have dinner together. This is not to be taken lightly. Because in these times, eating together was a picture of intimacy, of friendship, of affection, of acceptance. This is why the Pharisees could not stand that in his earthly ministry, Jesus, who was supposed to be this holy rabbi, was actually eating with sinners. And here he is saying, if you, if you will open the door, if you will repent, you'll know my affection again. We'll be intimate again. We'll rekindle our friendship again. You'll be renewed And finally, he says, if all that happens, if you know that what you're doing will make you, is making me sick, and should make you sick, by the way, if you know, if you can see now, because I have spoken, what you could not see before, and if you will come to me and repent and renew our fellowship, the last thing he says is, I will reward you. Verse 21, the one who conquers... I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. If they will humble themselves, they will be exalted. If they'll submit to Christ, they'll reign with Christ. If they will lose the self-sufficiency, they will gain victory. They will gain not just fellowship here, not just being known by Jesus here, but ruling with Him in the world to come. An exaltation beyond our imagination, really, for those who persevere in fellowship with Him. Where does that leave us? Gray Road, where does that leave us? A.W. Tozer once said, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. Is that true of us? Do we even take such a statement seriously? Or do we quickly dismiss those words as applying to those other churches? If so, then we need to beware of pride, don't we? And ask yourself, are, are we self-sufficient? Are we banking on our own wisdom, our own strength, our own power, our own strategies? Are we quite proud of ourselves, thinking we've got this church thing figured out? Do we proclaim a need for Christ in word and in song and in ordinance when we take communion, but not with sincerity of heart? Are we blind to a neediness that Jesus can clearly see? Do you think you might be blind to your own neediness? I wonder if God has graciously opened your eyes to see something about your own life this morning. Do you see your need to repent? Do you see, Christian, your need to renew fellowship with Jesus? I would encourage you to find a godly Christian friend and confess your complacency and begin to pray together and begin to look to the Scriptures together and begin to seek renewal from the Lord. 
And for those who aren't Christians, what is said here in many ways is a kind of walkthrough of the gospel for those who don't yet believe. You see, self-sufficiency is actually what ruined humanity in the first place. Relying on my wisdom, wanting my way, seeing no real need for God, so I live independently of Him. This is sin. And our sin means that we deserve God's judgment, God's eternal judgment in hell. And quite frankly, sin, our sin problem is so bad that the view master is glued to our face and all we can see is, I'm all right. I'm okay. You're okay. We're all okay. However, I see the world through my view master is my way of seeing the world. You've got your own view master. I'll try not to run into you. You try not to run into me and all will be well. The problem is, the Bible says that that's not actually how things are, that sin is such a problem for us as human beings that we are blind to see the problem for us human beings. We have been blinded, blind to the truth, blind to our sin, blind to the glory of Jesus, blind to the sweetness of salvation that He has offered in coming to live and die and be raised again for us. And so even now, with that in mind, the call is to come to Jesus. Even with judgment looming over anyone who doesn't trust in Jesus, the Word says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. Come to me, Jesus says. He's died for your sin. He's been raised again. He can give you everything that you actually need. There is nowhere else that you will find relief for the guilt that plagues you except in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. There is nowhere else that you will find the case that finally it's settled, I'm getting into heaven. The only way that that case is settled is by having the righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to you by faith. And so, repent of your self-oriented ways. Can't you see? It's just going to wind you up in judgment. Repent of it. Turn from it. Stop thinking about God and Christ and life and church and sin and what He says so smallly, so lightly, so infrequently, so absently. And turn to Jesus. And if you will turn to Him by faith, you will enter into fellowship with Him, and eternal life will be your reward. Every self-sufficient church must repent and renew its fellowship with Jesus. Every self-sufficient Christian must repent and renew his or her fellowship with Jesus. Every self-sufficient human being must repent and come to Jesus. Will we? Will you? Any member of this church would love to talk with you 
about that afterwards. I would love to talk with you about that afterwards. But will we? Will we repent? Will you repent? Jesus said, unless you repent, you will perish. But in him is life everlasting. That is the message of the empty tomb. It is the message of hope. Is it the message that is speaking to your heart? Let's take just a moment in quiet reflection with our heads bowed, and then I will pray for us, and our service will be concluded. Father, we bow before you. Thankful for your word. Your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it has pierced today. We pray that by your grace, we will respond to your word in repentance and faith and obedience. We thank you for our crucified and risen Savior who is a wonderful and merciful Savior, a gracious Redeemer and friend. Thank you for mercifully calling out to us Come to me. Thank you for the grace by which we came to you as believers. Thank you for the grace which abounds more than sin even now. Thank you for the grace which can bring any person, no matter how self-sufficient, no matter how defiant, no matter how complacent, no matter how apathetic, no matter how deeply entrenched in their own sin, your grace is sufficient to save. The blood of Jesus is sufficient to cleanse us. And we thank you. And I pray for any who know they are not a Christian. They may be a Christian in name only, but not in truth. That you will give them such grace today. The grace to confess their sins to turn to Jesus, to enter into real and living and vital relationship with Him. That those who know themselves as Christians who have, are truly trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ even at this moment, that those of us who have wandered into the murky water of self-sufficiency 
will be rescued by your grace. That your words today will be alive and active in us. That your spirit will draw us out. That you will work and will, that you will work in us to will and to do your good purpose, and that we will work out our own salvation and repent and renew our fellowship with Jesus. We pray that you will give us eyes to see our true condition. We pray that you will give us eyes to see our church truly. And where we are relying on ourselves, where we are following our gut, where we are prayerless, where we look outside the Scripture for guidance, Lord, rebuke us. Change us. Give us zeal for you, for your word, for your people. We thank you that in our wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked state, the Lord Jesus Christ has loved us. That you, Lord Jesus, have given yourself for us to forgive our sin and raised again for our justification. Give us assurance once again of the truth of the resurrection, the truth of salvation, and give us renewal to walk, to walk as Jesus did, to walk in zeal, to walk a faithful life, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And we ask it all in the name of our great and crucified and risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.